From the CW Network, this is Dare to Defy. Conversations with rebels, rule breakers, and change makers in America who defy assumptions, divisions, and judgment, who inspire, connect, and support us in our communities. I'm Brian Unger. On this Dare to Defy, we ask, how you doing? Like for real, how you feeling? Most of us will answer that with a curt and simple fine or good, but the truth is, a lot of us aren't feeling fine. We're not good. We might even feel like absolute crap, depressed, antisocial, anxious, or even numb. You might even feel, if you're honest, mentally ill. Mental illness affects one in five people between the ages of 15 and 24. And if we're being completely candid, the second leading cause of death for young people is suicide. The issue of mental illness plays a big role in All-American's second season, and maybe you noticed it even earlier in the series, surrounding Layla and the circumstances in her troubled family life. I know that this is difficult, but your behavior has raised questions. According to them, to my ex-boyfriend and princess rehab here, they say I've been acting differently, so all of a sudden you all agree I need professional help. You want to have me committed? Of course, that's Greta Oniogu, who plays Layla in All-American. What pretty much looks like an intervention is the result of her displaying signs of mental distress and a deepening depression. The consequences are looking potentially deadly, and everyone's spooked. Here's more from that scene. Everyone gathered here today loves you, Layla. But they're scared. Major depressive disorder affects millions of people across the country. Teens today are faced with so much pressure to be perfect. We're gathered here today because your friends and family are concerned about your erratic behavior and loss of interest in daily activities. We're here to get you help. Your father and I have agreed that inpatient treatment is... Wait. I talk with Greta about her portrayal of Layla's mental illness and with showrunner Nikechi Okoro-Carroll about taking the show into an area that's tough for us to talk honestly about. And then later, Allison Malman will join us. She started a mental health organization called Active Minds. My argument is always going to be when what's going through your head is interfering with your ability to live the life that you want to live, that's when you should get help. She talks with us about her mission and shares how her brother's suicide changed her life and what we all need to know about our own mental health. But first, Nikeche Okoro Carroll and Greta Oniogu. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Greta, I want to start with you. Um, on the surface, uh, your character seems to have it all. I mean, everything. You are rich. You're beautiful. You're dating the star running back on the football team, Spencer James, who's played by Daniel Ezra, of course. And on the surface, I mean, you've got it going on. It looks amazing, your life. Um, but beneath all of that is a young woman who is descending into depression, clinical depression. How is that crisis exhibited in your character in the show? Our portrayal of depression on the show isn't the sort of classic, I'm really sad and I'm really down all the time, which I think is what we see mostly. She actually... 
sort of goes outside herself quite a bit where she typically is a more reserved, put together character. She's exhibiting a lot of behaviors that are really like tumultuous. Mm -hmm. So taking a lot more risks, doing things that puts her safety at risk, uh, the safety of her friends. And it's all in an effort sort of just to feel something. Numb. That's how people who are depressed often describe themselves. Now, experts say that can be caused by anxiety. So much of it, you feel blanketed by layers of hopelessness and helplessness and lack of interest in anything. In the show, you, you're very good at portraying this character as being off. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think a lot of it is um, a lot of the time you very much feel have a lot of trouble concentrating and you're constantly trying to tether yourself back to the moment that you're in. So it's a lot of, oh, sorry, no, no, I'm listening. And, um, oh, I was just thinking about something else, but it's a really this constant battle to stay in the moment and stay present and stay engaged. And Kay, I want to bring you into this as someone who is steering this ship and guiding this show into these areas. You're really attacking this issue like head on. Yeah. The authenticity of what we're trying to portray on the show applies across the board. And so for me, it was if we're going to portray the authentic experience of teenagers in America right now, that includes issues like this. It's not Mm -hmm. just, you know, Mm -hmm. don't get me wrong. We've got our love triangles and we love them. (laughs) Um, But that's only a portion of being a teenager, especially nowadays with the amount of pressures that teens are under. My husband is a teacher. I've got a preteen at home. God help me. Um, And uh, (laughs) he'll be 13 in a month. Everyone pray for me. That's a whole other podcast. Um, Yes, it is. But um, and you see the amount of pressure they're under. You see I it's completely different from when I was a teenager. And and seeing that I'm like, okay, well, if we're going to have a show about teens and we're going to talk about authentically portraying them, we've got to talk about all sides of that. And this particular issue is one very close to my heart that I wanted to do because, you know, we've had experience with this. And then when I brought it to my writer's room, I don't think there was a single person in there who hadn't in some way, shape or form had to deal with this, whether it was through a friend or a family member or something. And it's just an issue that is in the zeitgeist that is weirdly out there. And yet we don't really talk about. So people are aware of it, but people don't dig into it. And so if you say someone has cancer, everyone will be like, oh, when I did the research, let's talk about this kind of cancer and that. And you say mental illness and there's this stigma. So this has got to be like new territory for you and the writers, right, in the room to talk about this stuff. It is definitely. And and in the way we're talking about it, because, you know, on – in movies or on certain TV shows, you'll see it addressed. It'll sort of be like, you know, the topic for the episode. And then it moves on. And for us, we wanted to really sort of dig in and show the slow progression and take our viewers through the real experience. So it wasn't something that we were just going to sort of be, it's our topic for the episode. We'll have a beginning and end to the story. And then we move on and all of a sudden Layla's fine in the next episode. We really wanted to sort of take everyone on this journey, both for teenagers who are experiencing this so that we're normalizing it. It's okay Mm -hmm. to experience distress. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be overwhelmed. It's okay to not understand why you're feeling the way you're feeling and just reach out to someone. And that's what we're trying to accomplish with the show is to normalize this topic 
not only for the people experiencing, but for the people who are around and love the person experiencing it. So that if your teen is going through something like this and they can't, like Layla's character, can't quite put a finger on what it is, Mm -hmm. they just know they're not quite feeling right and it's sending them in a spiral. As a loved one, as a sibling, as a parent, this hopefully will help you recognize some of the signs you should look for and be able to sort of reach out your hand and be like, hey, I'm right here. We can figure this out together. Whatever you're experiencing, A, it's okay. And B, you don't have to experience it alone. That's what we're hoping to achieve with this storyline. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to Allison Malman of Active Minds about the signs of depression and mental illness. Mental illness is, a, is an illness, uh, right? This isn't a choice of somebody needs to change their mindset, then they'll get over depression. These are real illnesses. Back in a moment. We are open to all choices, all orientations, all lifestyles, all possibilities. Because when we defy assumptions, change happens. When we defy division, hope happens. When we defy judgment, love happens. We are open to all and defy anything that stands in our way. Before we talk about depression with a mental health expert, what it looks like, what it feels like, and how to describe it. More with co-executive producer Nikechi Okoro Carroll and Greta Oniogu, who plays Layla. What's the hardest part to show how um, Layla, played here so beautifully by Greta, sort of starts to come unglued? Is that hard to do? Oh, very much so. On an emotional level, as writers, we're t- <laughs> we're not the most stable human beings in the world. So, uh, <laughs> you know, go- going through a story like this, I will tell you, there have been lots of tears in the writer's room. There's been me sitting under my desk. And there's been also, you know, it's a very emotional thing to go through. And we we talk about our characters like they're real people in our lives. And so Layla's experience, someone we love is experiencing this. And it's very hard and painful in the way we write, we all pull from personal experiences. And yes, we talk to subject matter experts and yes, we do our research. But at the end of the day, if we can't emotionally anchor to the story, it's hard to write. And so we have to put ourselves in Layla's situation in order to tell the story. And so from that point of view, it's extremely um, difficult. From a, I guess maybe technical would be the word point of view. When someone goes through something like this, it is very internal. We're a TV show. (laughs) We're a dramatic TV show. And the note we're always getting is we need to make sure the audience is experiencing this. And it feels very internal. And it it is. It's an internal disease. Mm -hmm. And so from that perspective, it was how do we tell this story? How do we keep it dynamic so that the creatives behind the show feel like we're still telling a dynamic story? But we're also being authentic to what this experience is really like, which is a lot of it is internal for the person who's going through it. And that's one of the reasons why we really wanted to take our time telling the story. The truth is, we've had this idea since season one. It was by the second or third episode of season one, I'd identified this as something that I wanted to do with the Layla character. And so if people go back and watch season one, if you're paying really, really close attention, they're tiny hints all throughout that season before we get to the final episode where she sort of destroys her house. They're tiny mm-hmm. hints of someone who has gotten really, really good at putting up a wall and wearing a mask. Mm. Um, and we wanted to tell that story in that slow way so that we help people understand that it's not, you can't just necessarily look at someone and be like, aha, I know what they're going through. I know what's going on inside. I know how to identify what it is. Often it's happening in people who've gotten really good at showing you what you want to see. Joining us now is Allison Malman of Active Minds. Active Minds, as you describe it, is the foremost mental health organization for students and young adults in the country. 
with programs and chapters in more than 450 colleges and universities and high schools nationwide. Allison, welcome. Thank you so much. Your brother, Brian, was smart, very popular by what I've read, a fun student in high school and in college. He started to struggle as a freshman at Columbia University. What happened next? Um, In some ways, we don't know, because like what we've talked about already and like what uh, we've seen in Layla's character, he kept a lot of it hidden. And so a lot of it was internal. But Brian was very successful in high school, got into Columbia, which was top choice, got to Columbia, immediately started in a number of activities, kind of pursuing the academic, you know, track, dean's list, student, name it. But what we learned was that he started struggling with his mental health in February of his freshman year at Columbia, so the beginning of second semester. But he did. He kept it quiet. And we had no idea. He, meanwhile, became a dean's list student, became president of these groups, president of an acapella group. He was the sports editor of the newspaper, in addition to being a columnist, star student in college like he had been in high school. In his senior year, though, he finally went to the counseling services and sought help. And I'm not exactly sure what prompted him to go at that Mm -hmm. point. Uh, I like to think that probably is when he felt like he had hit his bottom. And for him at that point, it was okay to reach out. And we've talked about this already today that for so many young people, we don't even know, it, you know, part of it is it's it's not admitting, but it's mostly not even understanding what you're going through. And for so many of us, we think that what we're going through isn't as bad as what other people have, or we don't deserve, you know, help because somebody else has it worse. And so we keep it inside because we think it's up to us to get ourselves out of it. When you say that you're not sure what what prompted him to go to this health center at Columbia. What do you think inside? Was he feeling so sad? Was that it that drove him there? You know, I love the comment that Greta made earlier because for Brian and his depression, uh, it it wasn't necessarily just about sadness. And and so often that's what we think of depression. But for him, what we what we kind of later uncovered was it was a an absence of feeling at all. And um, so it wasn't necessarily sadness. It was a, I can't connect in this life anymore. And I don't know how to move myself forward as, as a person. And I, that, that's how I know I need help. And that is pretty common in depression, that it's not necessarily a profound sadness. People with depression will often talk about the fact that they just don't feel. And that's even scarier than mm-hmm. feeling sad because you just to be you know, a human and not be able to feel. The numbness um, that we talked about a little bit earlier. That, absolutely. That, that, yeah. So it was something in that feeling that prompted him to, to reach out. And um, we, I come from a really supportive family. My mom is a clinical social worker. His kid's sister was at home in high school. And we had all the, the supports around him to, to be in this space where he could feel comfortable reaching out for help as soon as he needed it. But for he didn't know that he needed it. And he didn't know that he needed it until he had lost all sense of self and finally felt like, okay, I need to reach out to somebody in order to be able to regain my connection to this world. He seeks help at Columbia and they tell him basically that he should take a break and go home. Is that right? Yeah, in a a kind way. Um, So it happened to be a Friday that he had his appointment and he was showing signs of pretty severe anxiety and depression. And, you know, I grew up in the D.C. area, so the Columbia to D.C. corridor is very quick. And so the therapist recommended that he come home for the weekend to relax, to try to get out of the city, get out of school, kind of take take some time away um, in the in hopes that 
a little bit of self-care was what he needed in order to be able to kind of regain his sense of self. And it wasn't just anxiety and depression. Brian was, for lack of a clinical term, I I guess it's called psychosis, but he was starting to hear voices in his head. Can you describe what that means? Yeah, what what we learned after the fact is that Brian had started struggling with something called schizoaffective disorder in his freshman year at Columbia. And schizoaffective disorder is a combination of depression and the depressive and and, um, anxiety symptoms that go along with it and uh, psychosis, schizophrenia. And psychosis can look different in so many people. It's generally the existence of hallucinations, whether they be auditory or visual. So you either hear things or see things that don't actually exist in the world. And so what we learned was that Brian actually remembered hearing his first voice in February of his freshman year at Columbia. And none of his voices was dangerous. And the vast majority of people with mental illness are not dangerous to others. If there is a risk of danger, it's usually to self. But what his voices had told him to pack up his dorm room in boxes and sleep on the streets of New York for a couple nights at a time that mm-hmm. we learned after the fact, yeah. or um, to walk up and down some, a set of stairs at, on Columbia's campus called Low Library. And Brian had walked the steps of Low for hours at a time because the voices had told him to do that. And so that was the psychosis part of his um, disorder. And then he also had this combination of depression and anxiety to go along with so it. So these were things that were in your detective work and your forensic work, looking back on this, that were happening when he was a freshman. But we fast forward and he's a senior and and you're finishing up your freshman year in college at University of Pennsylvania. Is that right? Yeah, I was actually a senior in high school when he was a senior in college. Okay. We were four years apart. And Brian yeah. is home now and he's getting some treatment. Yep. He's getting real medical treatment. Yep. Um, what happened next? So Brian, he came home for that weekend as the therapist recommended and um, ended up staying at home and mm-hmm. ended up taking a voluntary leave of absence from school after he came home and my uh, social worker mom could um, better understand what was going on. It was the first time that Brian had let us into what he was experiencing. And so it was it was news to us. And my mom swept in right away to try to get him the support that he needed. And support looked like all sorts of different things for him, as it's the case for a lot of people who struggle with their mental health. It was medication and different therapists and different types of treatments and inpatient and outpatient. And is it this medicine or that medicine? And how long does it last? And he's really stayed in that pretty intensive treatment for a while. And what we were able to really uncover through all of this and better understanding his illness was that the psychosis was actually uh, something that we we could treat. It was something that we were able to address in Brian. But the depression, that depressive part of his schizoaffective had spiraled him down to a point where um, he had really lost hope. And so, you know, to go back to your question before, I think he reached out for, for help finally from that counseling center when he had lost hope. And, and that was when he, he knew that he had to reach out in order to be alive and to be okay. And so we were, you know, in this intensive treatment. He was on, in this leave of absence. I graduated from high school. I went off to the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and Brian was still at home. He had taken local jobs at the Washington Post and, um, you know, taking guitar lessons and finding, you know, TV shows that he was watching reruns after reruns of and still in this really intensive treatment. But about a year and a half after he took that um, leave of absence and he had gone to, you know, the Counseling Center at Columbia uh, in March of the year 2000, he, he ended up taking his life. It seems like you were doing everything right as a family. Do you feel like there's something that you should have done sooner or something like that? Do you feel like if we'd only done something to short circuit the progression, did you go through that whole process? Yeah. I mean, any suicide loss survivor will go through 
every iteration of those questions at any given time. I can tell you about the one thing that I said to him that one day, the week before he died, that I had to replay in my head a million times Mm. to figure out, you know, was that it? And I think as a suicide survivor, you learn that it's, it's not just one thing that was done or said, and it wasn't one thing that wasn't done or said. I personally believe really strongly that so much of what impacted Brian's story in his life was that time that he was in school struggling with his mental health alone and not feeling comfortable reaching out for help, that by the time he did reach out, we were so lucky that he reached out because that's at a time that many people will attempt to take their lives or or die by suicide without having given their family or friends any clues of what was going on. We, at least at the time that Brian did take his life, knew that he was struggling and knew that we had done everything that we could in that time period in which we knew. But that was just a year and a half of what became a four-year journey for Brian. And it was on the four-year anniversary of hearing his first voice, it felt to him like he was never going to get out of this this isolation, this desolation, which are the words he used. And he ended up taking his life a month after that. So I believe really strongly and continue to believe that we need to be doing a better job um, as a society, giving people the tools to better understand what they're going through and what their friends are going through and to be empowered and recognize that it's okay to reach out for help. And, you know, we could put all the counselors out there in the world, but we still haven't created a society where it's okay to reach out for that help or it's okay to have a family member have to go and go into inpatient or outpatient treatment, whatever it may be. And, you know, Brian truly believed he was the only person on his campus who was struggling because everybody else was walking around like they were having the time of their lives, going out partying on Fridays and Saturday nights. Maybe they were doing well in school, maybe not, who cared? But everybody seems like they're living their best life. And he thought there was something wrong with him. And he thought it was his fault. And he thought he was the only one struggling. And so that's what kept him so quiet for so long. And that's the opportunity that I feel and we feel at Active Minds where there's so much chance for us to really build kind of a community where people can get the help that they need as soon as they need it. In this scene from All-American for Layla, it's Spencer who intercedes to stop what is becoming a deadly progression. You want to tell me what happened? Um, I guess I was trying to make a point about my mom's accident and I was going to break. And you did. Yeah, but there was... There was like a moment where I hesitated. I don't even know what I was thinking, but I almost, um, for months I've just been trying to do everything to feel something, anything, but I'm just numb. Young people who are depressed seem like really extraordinary actors because they don't let on. So if they hide, how do we know? It's such a good question. Again, I want to I unpack it a little bit because something Greta said earlier I think is so true. It's that they're hiding because they, they don't know what it is they're going through. So the vast majority of people who are hiding are not doing it intentionally. It's not a, I want to play a game with you and mm. I don't want you, you know, it, it, it gets to that point mm. because it feels so raw mm. on the inside. But they're hiding because we haven't said it's okay not to hide, right? Like that's the environment we've created for them. So how do we know? We know because we are friends and we are family members. And, you know, what we, what I said earlier was that we as Brian's family didn't know what he was going through 
until he took that leave. But we learned after the fact that his friends had noticed changes in him. You know, there's no way not to. They were around him 24-7, and he had done some stuff in front of them that kind of challenged their idea of, like, that's that's not Brian. Like, what's going on? But they didn't say anything to him because they didn't know what to say, and he wasn't saying anything, and they wanted to protect him. And so we actually are seeing stuff in our friends and family much more readily than we're, we're able to do anything about because we don't have the language and the tools to actually talk to somebody that we're a little concerned about. But I think what we talked about earlier and what Greta described is so real with depression. You know, common signs of depression can be a loss of appetite or eating too much, uh, sleeping too much or not sleeping enough. But truly what it, what the most common sign of depression is, is just a loss of interest in things that once interested you. So if you were a soccer player or you were a video gamer or you were a knitter, mm-hmm. uh, and right now you have no interest in doing that, and it's not because you've moved on to something else that you think is cooler, just feeling like you aren't the person that you used to be, that is often a sign of depression. Anxiety is something that is really real in youth and young adults right now. And anxiety, again, can look like what we've typically seen in in panic attacks where people have to blow into bags. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always look like that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just an inability to turn off what's in your head Mm -hmm. and an inability to be able to function in the way that you want because your mind is racing so fast about all the things that you're not doing right or is not going to go right or something that is gives you the opportunity that you can't you can't actually be the person that you want to be. So anxiety and depression are the two issues that young adults are expressing most um, in terms of what's interfering with their daily life. And um, again, this it looks different in everybody. So I hesitate to give you know certain signs, but but doctors can do that. And if you have a certain number of signs based on the DSM criterion, you will be diagnosed with anxiety or an anxiety disorder, or depression. Um, but that's not up to us to do. Why don't mm-hmm. Why don't we create a, a place where people are, are reaching, getting the help that they need, so that the professionals can really help them figure out what's going on in their mind? And if I may, I mean, it's I think what you said is is so uh, poignant and important. It's really that they're not acting like themselves because yeah. everybody is different. Everyone has different personalities. And it's really m- more of a comparison to who that person normally is. And it's something, it was the way we chose to portray it with the Layla character on the show. And you'll hear a number of characters across various episodes this season just say, she's not acting like herself. Mm-hmm. They can't put a finger on what it is. They just know something's up because she's not acting like herself. And sometimes that's all you have. And that's enough to reach out to the person and be like, hey, you know, do you need me to help you get some help? Do you need someone to talk to offering that hand? My argument is always going to be when what's going through your head is interfering with your ability to live the life that you want to live. That's when you should get help. What becomes obvious in this discussion, in the identifying and defining out of all of it, what emerges is the need for us to be better at just listening. In fact, according to the Jed Foundation, who studies issues of mental health in young people, 67% of college students tell a friend they are feeling suicidal before telling anyone else. We have a tool at Active Minds called VAR to help people connect with each other if they're worried about, validate their experiences, appreciate that they share with you and refer them to help. Mm. So very much like what we've seen in this scene of you're not trying to fix somebody. You're not trying to tell somebody to get over it or say, oh, I've been through that too. Validate, gosh, that's that must be really hard that you're going through this. Thank you for sharing it with me. Can I help you call a counselor, call the crisis, um, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 
text the crisis text line, whatever it may be. And there are some really important talking points that that peers and youth and young adults can um, can learn to be able to help the people around them. So we're kind of lucky if we get there to that moment, yeah. right, where someone says, I need help. And if we have somebody on the other side, like Spencer, who stands there and just gives her a hug and says, I'm here for you. And I'll also say that with uh, the scene that we just saw and heard, um, that um, Layla reaching out for help was also after multiple attempts of her peers trying to help her. So it's not always going to be the first time that you you reach out to a friend and say, you know, is there a resource I can point you to that they're going to say, yes, thank you for validating and appreciating. Mm-hmm. And, and I would happily do that. Sometimes it takes, you know, standing there and your friend is going to get mad and not talk to you. And it's going to be a lot of back and forth. And eventually, um, you know, it is up to the person, yep. I think, to be the one to um, to accept that they need to reach out to someone and, and seek out that help. And mm-hmm. hopefully their peers are still going to be there and support them when they're ready to, to receive that support. After a short break, and this is really important, how to talk about mental illness, like literally what words to use. Back in a moment. We are open to all choices, all orientations, all lifestyles, all possibilities. Because when we defy assumptions, change happens. When we defy division, hope happens. When we defy judgment, love happens. We are open to all and defy anything that stands in our way. We're talking to Nikechi Okoro Carroll and Greta Oniogu from All American and Allison Malman of Active Minds about mental illness its role in the show, and our role in helping people who suffer from it. Help us break the ice here, Allison. How do we talk about this stuff? So I challenge you the next time somebody says, how are you doing, to actually answer. There also is there's a kindergarten curriculum where we can teach kids about resilience and coping skills. And there are health classes in middle school and high school where we can have an entire unit on mental health for yourself and the people around you. We have so much opportunity to go so much more upstream than we currently are. You know, with heart disease, we don't wait until somebody has a heart attack to make sure that there are enough clinicians there to save their life. We are teaching people from a very early age how to eat well, how to sleep well, um, what what heart disease looks like and, and what it means to be taking care of yourself and, and then what the signs are of something that could be going wrong and how to go to a doctor before it gets to crisis. And so part of the issue is that we cannot be looking at mental health issues as just a crisis, mm-hmm. as just being addressed when we're in a crisis phase. We have got to push this up and we have got to be teaching our preschoolers and our kindergartners and elementary school kids about what it means to be taking care of yourself and what it means to be struggling. I have, my, my oldest daughter is eight and she right now is struggling with anxiety and you better believe I'm using that word with her so that she can feel when she gets in this stage, she knows what she's going through and then we can talk about those coping skills that we've developed for her and she could talk to her teacher about it. Mm-hmm. And you know what her teacher said? Her teacher said, I have anxiety too. And do you know what that meant to my eight-year-old? That just meant that, oh, this is like, That's she's, a, she's a righty we like about. I'm a righty, right? It's mm-hmm. just making it normalized. Another sobering fact is this. Schools function as the mental health system for up to 80% of young people who need help, according to the American Association of Pediatrics. That means, on average, for every 1,400 students, there's only one psychologist. 
we have an entire structure where we do need more clinicians in this field and we need to be recruiting, uh, you know, and prioritizing the clinical work. We need to be putting more money towards covering mental health with health insurance, um, as well as making sure that there are enough nurses and, and counselors in the schools. But we also have an entire community that surround our kids that can have as much of a hand in this as as right now we're, we're putting just on a small group of people. You've devoted your entire life to this. Do you feel like there's progress being made? Do you feel like oh, we're getting somewhere? I do. I do. And we, we can look no further than this podcast and this show because you know, Brian died in 2000 and there was not a single portrayal of mental health or mental illness anywhere. And then the portrayals would come and they would emerge in the media and in general life. And it was all negative and it was all about those crazy people doing those crazy things. And then it became all about violence. And and, and now what we're seeing is real accurate portrayals of what it means to be a person and a person who has struggled. And and again, I keep putting myself in the perspective of my brother who just needed to know that he could be a college student who started struggling with his mental health. He could get help with that mental health and he could still be the person that he wanted to be. But that message, there were no messages of hope 20 years ago. And the amount that has changed over the past 20 years is extraordinary. And I'll tell you, I am most inspired by this next generation. I think the change has come because there are a new group of people in town and there are new generations who are not going to handle and accept mental health in the same way that our parents and grandparents' generations did. And I saw it very early on from the moment that my brother died, how differently my friends and his friends reacted from how my parents and grandparents' friends reacted, all trying to be as supportive as they could, but they didn't have the words. They didn't know Mm -hmm. what to say and they didn't say anything. My friends, however, sat in a room with me and said, Allison, we have no idea what you're going through, but how can we help? And that was the the instigator to me of we need to change this in America and we need to do it via young adults. Allison Mauman of Active Minds, first I want to say I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. And I want to thank you for sharing the story of your brother, Brian. And he sounds like an amazing guy. Yes. And that when he was here, he led an extraordinary life and... I'm sure you all miss him every day. Me too. Thank, Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing, too. And talking to you makes me feel more optimistic. And just for that, thanks. N.K., thank you for uh, the stories that you're writing and sharing. It's important. And you did it with a lot of sensitivity and care. So thanks for doing that. And uh, Greta, thank you for really a great performance as, as an actor. You're really terrific in the show. Thanks for sharing your stories here today, too. Thank you. Thank you all for being on our Dare to Defy podcast. If you'd like to start a conversation or want to know more about how to listen or look for the signs of mental illness, Active Minds can help with extensive resources and outreach across the country. Find out more at activeminds.org. Now, if you need to connect with a counselor for emotional support, like right now, or are concerned about a friend or someone in your family, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-TALK. Or you can go online and chat with a counselor at their site. That's suicidepreventionlifeline.org. The CW and its talent are passionate and committed to raising awareness for a number of charitable causes. To learn more, visit us at cwgood.com. This podcast is a production of the CW Network. 
Our producer and editor is Joshua Sterling Manley. Our audio engineer, Joel Smith. Dana Walker is our associate producer. I'm Brian Unger. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk next time on the CW Network's Dare to Defy podcast. Podcast.